from beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Hey everybody, this is Steven Spashney, and you have tuned into Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Got a great episode, because I get to chat with one of my favorite songwriters of all time. That's right, Mr. Gilbert O'Sullivan. So I urge you to sit back, relax, grab a wonderful and delightful beverage, and enjoy my chat with Gilbert. And I thank you for stopping by Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Gilbert O'Sullivan needs no introduction. But since you're here, I'll give you a brief one. For over 50 years, Gilbert O'Sullivan has been creating some of the most insightful, clever, and melodic pop of our generation. In the early 70s, he achieved success in the U.S. with Alone Again Naturally, Claire, and Get Down. But after an aborted American tour over four decades ago, Gilbert did not have the same kind of chart success in the States that he was experiencing elsewhere around the globe. Releasing an album every three to five years, Gilbert's recorded output has remained remarkably consistent, and his flair for writing compelling pop songs has never dimmed. Not counting compilations, Gilbert O'Sullivan has released 19 studio albums, the most recent being 2018's self-titled Long Player. His first U.S. release in decades, the album garnered great reviews across the board and set the stage for his return to live performances in America. For the first time in 43 years, Gilbert O'Sullivan returns to the U.S. for a live tour in April of 2020. In anticipation of this tour, I was able to chat to Gilbert about his career, including his most recent album, the forthcoming tour, and much more. Personally, it was an honor to speak to Gilbert, my second interview with him, but the first for this podcast. For tour dates and more information, check out Gilbert's Facebook page or visit gilbertosullivan.co.uk. But for now, please sit back and enjoy our chat. Welcome to the Blanket Fort, Gilbert O'Sullivan. been over 40 years since the last time you toured the U.S. What inspired you to revisit the States now rather than a year ago or even 10 years ago? Well, it, it wasn't uh, by choice. It was, it was um, forced on me in a sense because what happened was my first ever tour in America took place after the success was Alone Again, Clear and Get Down. So you've got like three million sellers and you're going to start touring. And so my manager, Gordon Mills, who managed Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck, had to make the decision. Um, 
I support another act or do I go out on my own like Tom and Engelbert, who were well established by this time? And I would have, to support that would have been to support the Moody Blues, who were really huge. And so the decision was made. It's nothing really to do with me. I, I wasn't involved in that. I mean, I, you know, my, my concern is always the writing and the, and uh, <clears throat> what goes on to making a record. So I kind of left it to Gordon and, and you know, assumed that they knew what they were doing. But it was a big mistake because the decision was to let me go out on my own. And while we started off in New York and Carnegie Hall, which was great, we were moving to much bigger venues. And, of course, the crowds were, were less so. And, and partly the reason for that was, in, in retrospect, people will tell you that, uh, you know, just because you have a million, you sell a million records or three million records, it doesn't guarantee bums on seats. Uh, people don't necessarily just go to a concert because you've got a hit record. It takes more than that. It takes them perhaps to see you as a support act. So, that, so you build up... Uh, uh, an audience. So anyway, so by the so what happened was that by the, we didn't the, the tour was pulled before we got to the west coast. It was just everything was cancelled. I left in the middle of the night, and so that that and that was then. I mean, it was a wonderful disaster because we had a we had an orchestra and a really nice people, and we had a private plane. So it was a well organised disastrous tour. Anyway, so that was the, the, the catalyst for what then happened because a few years after that. Uh, I got I had uh, legal problems with Gordon, my manager and stuff, which took up a few years. So it wasn't really until about 1990 when I could really start with the band again to start to do concerts. And in in essence, from about 1990 to the present day, we always tried to get back into America, but it was very very difficult, particularly in the last 10 years because I have a really I have a really good band, so there's eight or nine of us. So as you can imagine, the cost of all these musicians getting the visas and all the rest of it, it's it's a difficult thing. So that's that's why. Uh, we were unable to come over as much as uh, as much as I wanted to, and that's why with just myself and my guitar player Bill this time, that the door opened up for us. So it's kind of it's worked out really well, I think, at this stage. Better late than never. <laughs> Well, the tour is being promoted as just Gilbert, obviously without the full band, as you said. Do you enjoy the intimacy of doing shows like this, or do you find it easier to connect with the audience in this situation? No, both are good. I mean, with the band, are great. So it's it's kind of. I mean, I like. I, I love being with the band because we can rock it up and stuff. Um, so it's really good. But um, but the nice thing about uh, just myself and Bill, it's intimate. It's up close and personal. So you meet people afterwards, they'll tell you, we've seen you with the band. We really like this because with the band, we, did, we didn't, very often we didn't get to hear what you were saying, get, didn't get to hear the lyrics. This way of performing, people get to hear the lyrics very clearly. So it, it, And it has that sort of one-on-one approach. So and, and I've really enjoyed it. I mean, Bill is a wonderful guitar player and he almost makes a band sound. Uh, so with just the two of us, um, it's pretty much how I work anyway. When I write songs, it's only me, and there's nobody else there but me. So I'm very comfortable behind the keyboard. Uh, but but it's worked out really well. We've been doing this now for over a year. So I'm really looking forward uh, to the dates we have with you uh, to perform for people. Well, this tour is a celebration of your musical career, but it also serves as a belated support for your self-titled 2018 album. So let's let's talk about that. First off, this is your first album actually released in the U.S. for quite a few decades. Are you happy with the overall reaction to it? Yeah, it's been really good. I mean, in, in fairness, going back to the album before that and the one before that, the one before that was recorded in Nashville. Um, and I went to Nashville, established a base in Hendersonville. 
which is the house that we still have, and worked with, with uh, national musicians. It wasn't a country album. It's a pop album, which I do. Really very happy with that. And that then the next album, uh, Latin Elegy, which was a nice tribute to Peggy Lee, that worked out really well. But they were not released, as you say, in the States. So it's kind of, just, it's really nice that BMG, the record company behind me, are very supportive. And that's the reason why uh, it's available for you the, the way it is. And so I'm really pleased with the reaction I received. I mean, you know, it's, we had a, a, a review, which is a lot of people really very happy about, like the Washington Post, to get a really good review. So the reaction generally has, has been very positive. So I'm really pleased about that. And yet as I look back now on what happened, like the calls from those in planes, they were trapped in whatever they felt that day. I love you. That was all. When you were talking about the album from Nashville, that's the Gilbertville album, and I will tell you that it has, in my opinion, the best tribute to uh, the 9-11 victims uh, that I've ever heard because it was the most honest. Yeah, well, again, as a songwriter, you know, the events of 9-11, of course, you know, shocked, and, and I was up here in my music room when it happened, and we just thought it was a small plane that that just uh, a small, you know, sad accident and then it just grew into something horrendous and so what i what i picked up on was was there was so much written about the planes hitting the buildings and and i mean the, the horror of all that but i picked up on the fact that the people who were making who knew that they weren't going to survive and leaving messages uh, on answer phones to their loved ones just saying i love you and stuff and it, it brought it it brings out the poignancy of that of that much abused much used phrase uh, so that's that, you know. So that's what I kind of that's what I dealt with in that. In fact, when we sang it, you know, we did that. We did two shows in Philadelphia and New York at just um, at the end of uh, late last year as a, as a taster for what we're doing now. And when I sang it in New York, I was really quite emotional uh, performing the song there. Um, it was really, you know, it was really strange um, because it it means a lot to me to sing that song. Um, because of what I'm actually singing. Might be something I might have said Despite the times when it's angry we'll get Love how you leave me Leaving me love you Love how it leaves me Leaving me love you more The new album was produced by Ethan Johns, uh, an American producer from a different generation what did you like about ethan that inspired you to work with him well it's it, it, it's i mean i was aware of him because i knew he produced uh i mean off the top of my head now um this particular girl singer that he's worked with <clears throat> so i knew and he'd done a couple of things with mccartney and stuff uh, and his father of course glenn john's very famous producer from the 60s who did rolling stones and stuff so so meeting ethan and when the you know when they were bmg and myself and management were you know, sitting down discussing who would be good to work with. Um, he was kind of top of the list there. So I'd never met him before. And, and we had a nice meeting, cup of tea in a hotel. Then he came to Jersey. So his approach is, is you know, he only heard melodies because that's how I write. I don't finish the song until, unless I know it's going to be recorded. And so therefore I would, I would just sat here with him and play the melodies, gibberish words, making them up. And uh, he said, yeah, I like that one. I wanted, I had kind of rock songs. So I kind of wanted to, to go there after the Latin album. And uh, no, he wasn't really into the rock stuff, perhaps because he's used to doing that kind of thing. But, um, but you know, so I, I, I would play him things that 
which I was quite surprised he liked and stuff. And it was interesting, his approach to what he wanted to hear in his mind, Gilbert O'Sullivan type songs. And it was interesting because the fact that I sing gibberish when I was uh, doing it, I played him a ballad, which is not actually on the album. Uh, I played him this, and I put my heart and soul into gibberish. And so it's, uh, he, he, re- he really liked it. And, and when I told him that I was just making up the words, he couldn't believe it because he thought they were the actual lyrics. <laughs> So it's, uh, you know, really nice. But he's such a nice person. And and the whole organic analog approach that he has in recording, because it was all recorded in my studio here, which is a purpose-built, purpose-built uh, 48-track digital uh, studio with SSL desk and stuff. So the latest technology. But it's the approach, Ethan's approach to production is very organic, as I say. It's all done on tape, retaining the warmth that you get, as opposed to just uh, recording on digital. You end up on digital, but you can retain that warmth by recording on tape. So it was a really nice, ex- a really nice experience. Do you normally head into the studio with only the songs you plan to record, or are there usually a few finished recordings left over for bonus tracks or B-sides or something? There are uh, bonus tracks left from Latin. There are a couple of tracks left from the one with Ethan, but a new album will always be... Uh, you know, we, we have actually two really good tracks left over, um, which we wanted to use, but we felt, no, we can't really put them on because it would spoil the, the mood of what Ethan has done. And besides which, we had enough tracks for the album, so we didn't need to add any more. So they're there. They can be used for something in the, in the future. I'm, I'm really happy with them. So they're just kind of lying there. Perhaps they'll go on a compilation or something. But no, each album is, is approached brand new. They're all brand new. Um, there might be an odd verse, there might be an odd lyric title, but generally speaking, once it's decided uh, what songs they will be, then uh, I will then sit down and, and uh, do the writing, and uh, and then we look forward to going in the studio to record. Yet, if you ask, what for me is made to last? Nothing better to come together. The album is filled with some of your best tracks, including The Same the Whole World Over, Dance at Dreams and 45s, I'll Never Love Again. Do you have a difficult time, you know, once the album's ready, you know, which song is going to be the quote-unquote single or the focus track, or do you leave that up to the label? Yeah, I, I don't get involved in that. I mean, I, I've heard writers say that, that i heard people like Max Martin say that, you know, they know when they have a hit, uh, really? God, I would have thought that's kind of dangerous because you'd always. What happens if you didn't? If you didn't get that feeling on the next ten songs you wrote and stuff. So it's, it's, the key. The, the key is just to be happy with the work you do. I mean, I'm I'm really happy with the songs. Uh, you know, there's nothing on that album on this album that I didn't really like. The only the only track that I wouldn't that I would have perhaps changed would be the the, the riff. This riff. The approach to that was very light. Uh, I would I probably would have had a more straightforward rhythm going on behind it. Uh, but Ethan uh, kind of liked the, the loose feel that we had around that. So other than that, no, I, I was really happy. And um, so I don't, um, you know, <clears throat> I don't think about um, what might be a single. What I think about is, is it's a good song. And when it's recorded, I'm happy with the recording and happy with the vocal. That's it. That's a success for me. I mean, it's, you know, that's such a nice feeling when you get to that stage without anybody else outside. And knowing what it's like. So I think you can be, you know, that's what I think about songwriting is that if I was talking to a young songwriter for advice, I'd say that success isn't just about, it's great to have success for lots of people buy your records, and 
But success is also about when you finish what you think is a good song. That's a nice feeling, which is very special. Very special. Well, for casual music fans and and some music journalists, this is probably the first time they're hearing new music by you in four decades. Is it difficult to balance focusing on the latest album while also being asked about um, all of your earlier hits? Well, no, because you know we 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 also have the album out, which has been out in Europe, uh, maybe in the states. That we've got the Essential Collection, which contains forty three is it forty three tracks of mine, which is a really pretty good rundown of my career in terms of songwriting. It's it's quite a it's a very varied compilation. So I think that kind of you know that that sums up my work. So I'm very I'm very happy uh, talking about songs in the past. In fact, I've had letters from people in America. That in one in particular a real fan who loved a song on Every Song Has Its Play, which is the kind of musical thing I, I, I did, um, like a like a soundtrack. Um, I've never been short of a smile, and he keeps writing me saying how much he loves that song. So I've had letters from people in the States over the years on the records that are not released in America, but they've managed to get a hold of them, telling me how much they like a particular song from a particular album. So I'm I'm pretty much proud of all the stuff that's out there, and I have no problem talking about it, no problem playing tracks from the past, uh, mixed with uh, the current material. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, I'm comfortable with that. Moments when depression seemed the only cure Days when doubts were all about Now I'm sure Despite losing battles that I know I could win I've never been short of a smile Speaking of the old recordings, there was a great reissue campaign that started about seven years ago, and now remastered and expanded editions of all your studio albums are available. Are there any other reissues planned? I, again, I would I'd leave that up to the record company. I mean, what what I what, what I've had in mind is I did it in the in the early nineties, an album called um, by Larry, uh, which was just myself on piano. Uh, with a little orchestration. In fact, some of the songs on the album are what I would classify as totally original O'Sullivan songs, that things like Mr. and Mrs. Regards came to see me yesterday. In fact, came to see me yesterday, Tom Rush, the American uh, singer Tom Rush, recorded that way back in, 19- he recorded that in 1969. So that was one of the first covers I ever had. Tom Rush was, was very renowned for covering songs by up-and-coming writers. Uh, so that was that was a big thrill. So think so songs like Mr. and Mrs. Regards that that's uh, well, that they for me are, are are sort of totally original O'Sullivan songs. Whereas the songs like I'll Never Love Again, Dance of Dreams are good pop songs uh, in the tradition of good pop songs, um, which is you know which is um, when I look back on that. So that's, so what I do have is the idea of an album just piano and voice again, doing a kind of just songs with myself on piano. So there, there, there is that option for the future. And uh, I like, you know, I also like um, the idea of doing an album with, with just on acoustic guitars. I've always liked tracks with acoustic guitars, things like Blackbird and stuff that McCartney's done. Uh, I like the idea, uh, idea of having 12 of my songs written on the piano, but performed with acoustic guitars. That would be kind of interesting for me to do. So there, you know, ideas like that uh, can pop up. Who was it that caught you falling and put you back on your feet? And who was it that tripped Do you enjoy cover versions of your songs? Because I, I particularly loved Andy Williams' version of uh, Who Was It? Yeah, well, Andy, you know, Andy was a big fan. of it. he rang me up. I, mean, I've, I talked to this one when I tour. Um, he rang me up when I was in the States in 1973 and said how much he loved We Will 
really liked the song we will and wanted to record it but he but he didn't there was a, a line in there that he didn't understand and he wanted to know if it was okay if he changed that's the line in the last verse baggy being in goal that's a bit that's what that means uh, for you uh, anybody else who doesn't know what Bagsy means is you want to be the person in goal. You want to be the goalkeeper in the team. Uh, so so I, I told him to go ahead and do it. So he was always a fan. And as you say, yeah, he did. Uh, who was it? I, I met him when I was at the Grammys. Uh, so I knew he was a big fan of mine. So yeah, I, all, all the cover versions, I've always looked upon cover versions as a compliment to the writer. So I never criticize any cover because I feel it is a compliment to you that somebody's prepared to do it. Having said that, uh, sometimes covers bring a smile to my face, never a frown, but always a smile. And the Japanese version of Alone Again by a heavy metal rock band at 200 miles an hour is one of my favorites. It just, it's just does your head in when you hear it. It's just, <laughs> so it's, uh, but the covers, you know, and, and everything from people like Sarah Vaughan, um, uh, you know, the, Esther Phillips. Um, I mean, way back in 72 when Alone Again was number one, Ray Conniff was bringing out an album entitled Alone Again, Naturally. And so there, we were getting so many covers, which is, as I say, that's a wonderful compliment to you as a, as a songwriter. And Nina Simone, for, I love Nina Simone. And Bobby Darren did a version, which is, um, I mean, so, so these are people who are iconic figures. So the fact that they uh, recorded my song is, um, was really nice. Leaving to doubt, talk about God in his mercy. Speaking of Alone Again, naturally, does the song's connection with listeners and its longevity surprise you? Well, again, I don't go into that, uh, Stephen. I, I, I don't go analyze anything. A dangerous area to be doing. I, 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 I just, I get on with the work and, and whatever, you know, the work is the key. Uh, everything else evolves around that. And uh, so I'm loath to kind of get into any form of analysis, why, how, or when, as, other than the fact that it's nice that people out there I like my work. Even though you've been releasing albums every three to five years, does, does it get a little frustrating when every release is called a comeback album or do you just take it in your stride because you're you're most definitely not a nostalgia artist I, I, it's, it, it was more difficult over here um, because you, which you wouldn't be aware of because the image I created way back in 1967 uh, America has never seen that um, and that has worked against me um, in the UK not so much in Europe, but certainly in the UK, which is where I lived. And so, and the UK is where I wanted to be the most, the most successful. So in 66, when I came up to London, uh, to, uh, I created this image, uh, Charlie Chaplin jacket. Uh, I love Charlie Chaplin season at the cinema. And I love Buster Keaton. And so I, I used to hire a Chaplin jacket from the, from the costume. Um, theatrical costumers uh, on a weekend from work just to look in the mirror for two days <laughs> then I would take it back and the funniest thing was they, they used to say to me what's the production you want the jacket for you, know, you hire these things and I said no actually it's not for a production it's just for me to have a couple of days to look at it and then give it back to you so I was kind of a, 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 kind of weird and I had a pudding basin haircut I had a haircut the way everybody tends to cut their hair now which is really short but in 67 um you may be aware, long hair was, you know, James Taylor look, long hair, fashion, denim shirts, jeans, 
But I had this image, a uh, really weird image, which I created this character called Gilbert. I didn't call myself Gilbert O'Sullivan, just called myself Gilbert. So CBS were my first record company, first record in 67. I thought the image would, would sort of would gain a lot of publicity and stuff. But the record company didn't like it at all. And um, they didn't know what to do with it. And they they said, look, it, it's your songs are good. Why do you need to look like that? But I was, you know, the catalyst for me creating the image were the Beatles because when the Beatles came out in '62, they didn't have to have Beatle haircuts and colourless jackets, and but they did, and 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 that you know that that image stayed with me. And so when I wanted to create an image, I knew it was impossible to create an image that looked good outside of the long hair and stuff. I knew whatever I did was going to look a bit odd. But that's that's what I was determined. But that's worked against me over the years because I was not taken seriously. As you can imagine, my first album in England uh, himself was critically quite well received uh, and it contained Nothing Rhymed, which was a big hit. <clears throat> but the singer-songwriter element of me how I looked worked against me because I guess if you were a college student, you wouldn't want to be seen going around the campus with an album cover looking the way that I looked. And that didn't bother me. And I, I wasn't bothered. I mean, everybody, nobody liked the image. Nobody bar none. Uh, 67, 68, the record of me I went to after CBS, they didn't like it. They all kept saying, please, grow your hair, wear jeans, look like James Taylor, and you'll be far more successful. And they were right. There's no question that I would have sold far more albums had I looked the way the image at that time was for everybody, the natural look. Uh, but I was, you know, I wasn't bothered. I liked the fact that that songwriting is a serious business, and I just liked the idea of looking different. And I heard Elton John say not so long ago in an interview, he said that uh, they asked him why he dressed up peculiarly for those his concerts and stuff and bizarre clothes. He said, well, when you're a piano player, unlike a guitar player, you can't move around. You're stuck there. Whereas your guitar player, you can go from one end of the stage to the other. So therefore, his idea was to look like that would take away from the stillness. of the... So there's an element of that with me. But the fact that you just sat at the piano for however long, looking the way you did, would kind of get help in some way. But anyway, that's why... Um, the, the, the rea reaction for me critically in the UK has always been uh, not great. But I, but I got over that about eight, seven or eight years ago. I stopped worrying about that. I used to, you know, I used to be quite offended when an album came out of mine in the UK, and all they talked about on the, the review, if there was a review, was how I looked, uh, the cap and boots and stuff. No mention of the writer, no mention. And so that that used to bother me, but it doesn't bother me anymore. And, I'm, and, and what pleases me now is the acceptance. Uh, I feel like in the UK, I'm, I'm working towards getting people to like me more. Um, but I don't have to work so hard for you in, on the image front because you've never seen, you never, had to, you never had to look at that way that I looked back then. Both now facing for the first time, presently and past. Something that begins with them and ends in a last. Start. What could it be? It's matrimony. You've been compared to classic songwriters like, you know, say Paul McCartney, Randy Newman, Harry Nielsen. What were the main influence that helped create your unique approach? Because you distill everything from Tin Pan Alley to 60s pop to music hall to Brill Building all into your unique mm. style. Well, I just loved, I mean, uh, you know, the catalyst for for me uh, to perform and to sing 
And to, to write song with Lennon and McCartney, of course. And then, but for singing with Dylan, Bob Dylan was a huge influence for me. Um, because I don't have a great voice, but I have a distinctive voice. I always knew that. And I felt comfortable with my distinctive voice singing my song as opposed to singing other people's songs. So I figured if Bob Dylan could be a success with his voice, then perhaps I could with my voice. And then on the songwriting front, as I say, uh, Lennon McCartney. I bought Randy Newman's first album, which I think sold about 10 copies. So I was always looking, searching. Nilsson, I was into Nilsson way back in late 60s and stuff. So I worked hard to, to, to get those influences, to, to listening to music. The radio was probably the biggest influence on my career because I love radio. I still do um, because I get to hear things which for the first time, uh, and that's important. When going back and listening to your back catalog, it's remarkable that nearly all of it still sounds contemporary and fresh, and the songs uh, are, are still relevant and exciting, uh, you know, even 40 years on. Do you feel that focusing on the songs themselves rather than the latest recording technology and trends has helped in making your record sound timeless? Well, I, I guess my approach to writing, because I, you know, I, I use, I have, um, I write on cassettes. Uh, I, I, I have digital technology in my music room, but I don't like them because I, every time I need to change or look at them, I have to put my glasses on. And so with a, with, with a cassette player, I can put the, the 70s ghetto blasters, which have inbuilt microphones on either side. So you can plonk the thing on top of the piano, put in the cassette, and away you go. So all my writing is very basic, um, but it's, the key is always the song. So while the technology is wonderful to have, there's no question about that, um, the essence is without the song, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not one of these people that spend three days working on a backing track for a demo. Uh, my demos are pretty rough. I mean, you'll, you'll hear hiss going on, but I figure that who cares if there's hiss on it, if it's a good song, and you're playing it to somebody, it doesn't matter. But you know, but I get sent demos by young young writers, and the, the sound is remarkable. The drums, the guitars, the, the harmonies. But perhaps some, what might be missing was the essence of what it should be, which is a basic good melody and a simple lyric and stuff. So that that you can get lost if you follow that. So I, so I, I I'm still writing the same way that I did when I was 15 years old. The garden shed where I had an upright piano um, at home. Uh, it's that's where I started, and so I, I worked through the first song as I would borrow a tape recorder. My first tape that I sent to a record company was done on a little message tape, and I borrowed a tape recorder, and I and I and I just recorded it in the in the garden shed, and that's the tape that Gordon Mills and people heard when I, when I sent it around. So I you know I worked from a tape recorder, then I moved on to cassettes, but I stayed with the cassettes. So that's essentially all I do. So there's no real technology involved in and what I'm trying to do, other than sitting at the piano, trying to come up with a melody, uh, pleased when I do, and then uh, finishing a song when I'm going to record it to, to concentrate on the lyrics. I'm no genius where love's concerned More fool me to pretend Whatever it takes While my heart aches I'll never love again as a songwriter and storyteller, you sing from a point of view other than your own. Have you found it difficult when critics or fans confuse the issue and assume that you're always expressing your own personal feelings? Like, for example, when I was 10, I truly did feel great empathy for the singer in Alone Again Naturally. Uh, well, well, I explained it. I mean, people are surprised when they talk to me and, and they, 
they assume, uh, they think that uh, learning a particular song like that must have been based on personal experience. Um, but but no, it's 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 uh, you know I'm I'm a good lyricist I think, and, and and the reason is you can be a good lyricist because you have an understanding of a subject. You don't have to experience it. A lot of my songs are are. I find it interesting when I go right back to matrimony. Matrimony is a huge popular song for us because it's Latin. So it go, it's it's very popular on stage and stuff. But the lyric of that about getting married in a registry office and, and not inviting your parents and all that, I mean, that, that's not me at all. Uh, but I get into that. I kind of get into the subject matter. So I, I, it's interesting to go into an area trying to find, understand the subject. I have a song called It's Easy to See When You're Blind, which is one of my favorite songs. Uh, and so... You know, I don't need to be blind to write about what it's like to be blind. This is the whole point. But I, but what's important is you do it with a sincerity. There's nothing, uh, uh, you know, jokey or, or 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 humorous about it. It's a serious subject, and you sing and you write it in a serious way uh, to be sung in a, in a sincere and serious way. It's easy to see when you're blind. I walks in the park. Mountains to climb And it's easy to tell at a glance How hard it must seem When you don't stand a chance Let me take you These days do you find that you have to carefully craft your lyrics from time to time so not to offend anyone? Because words that come from innocent emotions and thoughts can easily be misconstrued even decades down the line. Yeah, I mean, the saddest example of that has to be Claire and stuff because, you know, the song uh, is written about, it's, it's a tribute to Gordon Mills, my manager, his daughter, Claire. It's a tribute to the parents, to Joe, his wife, who used to feed me. She used to make meals, cook meals for me because I lived just down the road from them. So I would walk up to their house and occasionally Gordon would say, or Joe would say, would you be able to babysit? So I babysit for them, and Claire was the one who would get up in the middle of the night and stuff. And I, and I come from a large family, so I'm, so I'm, I'm, I like, you know, I like, I'm used to being around children and stuff. And, so, and Claire was very affectionate and stuff, and she used to call me Uncle Ray and this and stuff. So I, I wrote the song as a, as a tribute to the parents. But I, but I, you know, that's a song which I, I don't think I could write today. I don't think I'd be able to write that today. And I remember I cut it out. There was an article by a, a very well-known uh, Jeremy Clarkson. He's, he's, he does car programs uh, about cars and stuff. And, and, there's a, and there's a radio program over here on Saturday morning for children, uh, children's request. And he asked the producer of this program, he said, my daughter or my, my wife's friend's daughter asked me to ask you if you could play Claire for him. Uh, for them because their daughter really likes it. And he said, no, he said, you know, this is a 24-year-old, this is a man talking, talking about a child, you know. So it's, it, it's, it's become a gray area. So you can imagine, it's such an innocent song and it's very popular and when I perform it, there's no problem. But you can imagine these days, it's a different world to how it was then. So I'm kind of conscious of that. Nothing means more to me than hearing you say I'm going to marry you well but other than that, uh, writing a song like A Woman's Place is in the Home, my kids are horrified. <laughs> and, you know, I really like that song because I did it in a, a sort of Gamble and Huff style. I loved Gamble and Huff. Uh, way back in the early 70s, that those those writers and stuff, Gamble and Huff. And so the song is, it's a really good track, uh, but it's but I call it A Woman's Places in the Home. <laughs> it's, 
it uh, you know my daughters are just they, they don't want to know about that they said dad forget don't ever do that don't ever put that on a compilation not one of those who look for blood from a stone but i believe a woman's places in the home in many ways your music transcends any genre. I mean, it's it's pop, but it's more than that. Uh, you know, it appeals to the classic rock fans, the power pop kids, uh, fans of, you know, all the great singer-songwriters. But how do you classify what you do? Well, again, I mentioned earlier, Stephen, I don't analyze that at all. I just get on with the work. I just do it, do it. I mean, that's the key. I want to do what is, is difficult for my peers, for people in of my generation, the Paul Simons, the Ray Davises, the McCartney's even of this world, are they turning out material as good as what they've done in the past and stuff? That's the key. I would be very disappointed if you talk to me saying, much as I like your album, it doesn't compare to anything you've done in the past. What's really nice is when people compliment me in the sense that songs on this album are as good as I've done in the past. Because that's what I work hard. I really work hard to do that. And now when I listen to a Paul Simon album and it sounds the, sound, the band are fantastic, the technology is great, and but the, the, what's missing for me is what was there on tracks like America and the song for the asking and wonderful melodies and stuff. That's what I'm listening for. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm searching for, uh, to be influenced. And, uh, and so, uh, so I'm very conscious of how it's easy to lose that melodic ability and perhaps age has something to do with it, but it may also be, as Gerald Charleston said, <clears throat> he, you know, in the eighties, I think he was he, in an interview, he said, you know, he didn't like anything he heard on the radio anymore. And I'm thinking when George Harrison was 16 or 17 years of age, he probably loved everything he heard on the radio. Uh, that's, that's, that's the difference. And, and so radio for me is still very important. I put the radio on, uh, Radio 1 here, which is the number one pop station. I put it on early in the morning. Then I listen to Radio 2, which is more MOR across the board. Listen to that in the afternoon. So radio is always on in the house for me. Uh, it's very important because that's how I get to hear something new, intrigued by that. And if I'm intrigued enough by it, I want to check it out. I say to my daughter, I don't have to buy it now. My daughter will say, oh, I'll get it for you online. <laughs> so she'll, she'll get it up for me. But, you know, so I, that's how you get in, in, into new music. I know Elton does. He buys everything. So I buy everything to listen, to, to learn. I'm a big John Mayer fan. Like the Chain Smokers, Pink, Camilla Cabilla, you know, Vampire Weekend. I love Alison Krauss. I met her when we were in Nashville. So I buy everything. Ron Sexsmith, he's a fan of mine, and I'm a fan of him and stuff. Isn't everybody, Steve? Because that's 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 where you that's that's what keeps you current, if you like. That's what allows you to be a contemporary writer. Is the fact that you're enjoying what you're hearing. Not everything, but you're enjoying a lot of what you're hearing. And and also, I, I'm searching. I also go back way back. Uh, to early musicals of the 20th century because the melodies then on all those theatrical tunes are very strong melodies. So that can be it. You know, I love Jerome Kern, a fantastic uh, composer. Uh, so I love his, his music and stuff. And uh, so I'm always going back in, in to searching up old, uh, old compilations of uh, early 20th centuries. Tell me, cause I don't care. 
your 2018 album is just as emotionally impactful as anything that you've done, but it's also just as good as anything, if not better than stuff that came out, you know, in 2018, because there's so much great stuff. And it's frustrating when some people just say that there's just nothing happening. I love to hear the fact that you're still buying, still listening, and uh, still interested in what's going on. Yeah, but you have to be. You have to be because then you're in the George Harrison scenario where you don't like anything you hear, and you know it's, it's it's you know there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to be a contemporary songwriter, how can you not like what's going on? I mean, there is a distinctive thing today that's different to the past. The technology has made production massively uh, important. There's no question about that. Uh, production values there are huge compared to it. look what you can do in a and you know in my studio what what. Um, what what you can do if there's a mistake on a track, you can correct it, you can change keys, you can do so much. Uh, it's amazing. But um, <clears throat> but the essence of what we do is is very simple. It's very very simple. And long may that uh, remain. Who's that? Uh, there's an American songwriter who also used cassettes. She writes famous songwriter in L.A. Um, it, uh, you probably know her. I can't think of her name. She uses cassettes. Just <laughs> she writes on cassettes. She wrote the Aerosmith big hit. I mean, you, you oh, what's her name? Is it Diane Warren or is it? Uh... Yeah, Diane Warren. Yeah, okay. I think it's Diane Warren. She's a great songwriter. Uh, I believe she. I think, I think, like me, I think she uses uses cassettes, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So, so yeah, um, there's there's great music out there and stuff. I mean, uh, I you know, and, if, and I'll search for. I'll keep searching for uh, things. And as I say. I'll buy contemporary things. I may not get a lot of out of it, but I'll get something out of it. And I'll also go right, right back uh, to Stephen Foster, <laughs> which, which, which is, you know, beginning of the 20s. I mean, who do you think influenced uh, um, Irvin Berlin? I mean, who was the influence for him? It had to be Stephen Foster. Uh, so, I, so I'll go right back to, to that time because melodically, that was a massively important period. And when you listen to those uh, recordings from that time, of course they're dated and of course they're old-fashioned, but the melody will always come through, and that's important to, to have to, to influence. Dear dream, I pray that you will come my way. Give me a clue of how to get to, of how to get to, of how to get to you. Halfway through your career, the LP died, and then now, here it is, 27 years or 30 years on after that, you know, the LPs have come back again. Do you have a preference in terms of how you listen to music or how you want people to listen to your music? Well, not how I want people. I mean, people can listen to it how they, how they want. I mean, streaming is massive now. I mean, I'm being told all the time that, that, that it's become very important in the marketplace. Uh, <clears throat> now, I listen up because, I mean, I... I I, I like I listen on CD. I have I have sort of recording studio speakers in my music. I like to sit down with the booklet and look at it and see who's written it, see who's producing it. I love to do that. I, you know, I buy an album. I'm excited about getting an album, sitting down, putting it on. Uh, I miss the, the the size. Very often I have to have my glasses on to read what's in the booklet. I just wish they were bigger. But vinyl. I mean, you know, uh, uh, my album is out on vinyl. It's actually on cassette as well. Would you believe and stuff? So th there is a resurgence in vinyl. Uh, it's uh, it it doesn't compare to CD sales, but it's uh, <clears throat> but it's interesting. And you know, I think the reason for for the vinyl is because of the covers. A lot of people who are buying the vinyl albums of, of, of artists they like, <clears throat> they're not buying, they have the record, 
but they buy the vinyl because it has the 12 inch size cover and they can and i think that's 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 the attraction which is kind of young people i think that's the attraction but it's uh no it's, it's interesting i mean the marketplace you know that it is what it is uh it doesn't stop me doing what i want to do uh god forbid and um I'm, I'm, you know, I'm as excited about the future as, as anybody. Well, the ever-evolving music business and, and technology has put less of a focus on albums, and they focus on singles and EPs. Is that something that you consider when you head into the studio? No, really. Again, no, no, no. I just, no. I'm just happy to start from track one that we're going to record and end up on track twelve or thirteen, and that's it. I don't. Again, it's you know thinking about those things, Stephen, would be I think it's kind of dangerous. It's an area you should stay out of. Other people can you know other people can do that, uh, because if you start, you know, if you get into areas of where you think this should be that or this track should be, I mean, it's nice when you have a track that people think could be a single. I mean, I, I like the fact that you know that, that where would you go, where did you go to was chosen because that was a radio two, the most popular radio station. Um, and they, they they had it as a on their playlist, and then they had um, same the whole world over on their playlist. That's that's an important. That's almost like a hit now in the UK if you get that. Um, as we know, sales are diminishing for singles. If you looked at the singles chart in the UK now, there's there's so many acts that you would never know how clue who they were. They're very dance orientated, very uh, unusual items and stuff. But it, it it's. Um, and I, I um, you know, I just, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear, like, I'll Never Love Again, we thought might be a single, but it was, perhaps it was a bit too long. So, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll hone in on, I'll listen in on those conversations that the record company have. But it's nice that they're having those conversations, and it's nice when they decide what will be or what could be. I'm happy whatever they decide to put out, uh, even though I, you know, I wanted, to, I actually wanted them to put out uh, No Head for Figures, but <laughs> They they were they were a bit they were a bit worried about that so we, so we didn't you know. <laughs> Your voice still sounds amazing. What tricks do you use to take care of it? Just look after it. Just it's the discipline involved, and I do I have like a I do exercises uh, always on a concert day, uh, day before a concert. I uh, just look after it. Uh, no alcohol, obviously, while you're touring. When you're doing concerts, avoid the alcohol. Um, eat. You know, eat sensibly, um, and doing it. We do two shows on one day off, two shows on one day off. So, uh, if I did three shows, I would struggle. But you do two shows. You know, we do perform for two hours a night, so it's it's an hour, fifty minute break, and then we do the second hour. So it's just important to look after your voice. Rested after the show. Don't talk too much. Uh, get a good night's sleep. So that's all. It, those are basic things which are important uh, to me to keep your voice. Look after How can listeners keep updated on all things Gilbert O'Sullivan? <laughs> I, well, my daughter, uh, Tara does social media. She does. She, she, she's the one that will come in and say, you need to do this, need to do, I need to get a picture of you doing this. We just did, um, we did a phone message, a filmed phone message for, there's a, there's a version of the song from Latinology, I Guess I'll Always Love You, uh, which, is a, uh, which was sung as a duet with a Spanish artist, and that's being released end of this month in Mexico and South America. And so Ayala did that, so it's partly in Spanish. So that, we did a little phone message, I had to do it, 
look smart <laughs> and 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 do the message for that. So things like that. That's how you know. So Tara will get me to do that. Uh, so that's her department. I might be hiding from her, but, but I'll, I, I know it's important, so it's, it, that's it. But I'm just, um, I, I've started to write again now, so I'll, I'll let you into the, that couple of the songs that I've completed for potentially the next album. Um, one of them is called um, Over My Dead Body. And I've always liked the phrase over my dead body because it's a weird thing. We use it to say that if you wanted to do something which I didn't like, I would say to you, you won't be able to do that over my dead body. That's the, you know, it's an unusual expression. So that, that's a song that, that's likely to be there on the next time. And then currently I'm writing a lyric called Blue Anchor Bay, which goes back to when I was a, a student at college and we went on a day trip to Blue Anchor Bay. And it was just fun. <laughs> Those are things that I'm I'm slight I'm slightly starting to get into. I still have some concerts to do. We got a Holland next week for a show, so I'm kind of gradually getting back into the lyric front. By the end of the year, I, I hope I would hope to have enough songs. But again, you see, when the when the producer of the next time sits with me, maybe that uh, he'll say, no, I'm not mad about that one. So I'll I'll have the melody that he'll like, which means that I'll have to go and start writing again. <laughs> When she passed away, I cried and cried all day, alone again, naturally. Alone again, naturally. Well, that's it for this episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. I'd like to thank my special guest, Gilbert O'Sullivan, for stopping by and chatting about his career and his forthcoming tour. I'd also like to thank Elliot Kendall. And I'd especially like to thank you for hanging out and listening to our conversation. Remember to like, share, comment, and subscribe. Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Smell you later.